Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. While many people feel like the world is headed back to normal, many kidney patients are feeling left behind. The National Kidney Foundation is here for you. COVID-19 remains top of mind for those who are immunocompromised, and we're here to offer resources and support. On today's episode, our guests will answer your questions about how COVID-19 affects everybody with kidney disease, whether you have a transplant, are on dialysis, or in the early stages of CKD. We'll also discuss the latest treatments that are available and how to best protect yourself as life in the COVID era continues. Hello, my name is Patrick G. I am a former peritoneal dialysis and in-center hemodialysis patient. I'm currently five years into a kidney transplant. I received my kidney transplant on April the 21st, 2017, and I currently reside in North Chesterfield, Virginia. Hello there. My name's Dan Wiener, and I'm a nephrologist at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, and I am the medical director of DCI Boston, one of the dialysis clinics located in Boston. Thank you for having me here today, and I'm very pleased to be working with the National Kidney Foundation. My first question is, should I have my antibodies tested? In terms of antibody testing, I think nobody knows what the utility of doing that is right now. The CDC does not recommend testing antibodies routinely in people. That stated, there are a lot of data from dialysis and transplant populations that show that knowledge of antibodies can be informative. They can give you a good idea of who has responded to vaccines, so who has a functional immune system. And more importantly, I think they can give you a good idea of who's going to get sick if they do get COVID. As we've moved into this Omicron phase, a lot of times people with COVID are only having mild symptoms. And sometimes people have severe and life-threatening symptoms. And it's really hard to know who is going to have very mild COVID and who actually could get really seriously sick from this. And the antibody levels do seem to predict who is going to fall into each one of these groups much better than any other data that we have. So my conclusion on this answer is that we don't know for certain. I think it's a conversation you can have with your physician. I think that there may be a role for this, particularly in dialysis and transplant, which are the most vulnerable populations um, to COVID and where blood tests are done fairly routinely. But again, it's not standard of care at this time. Doc, how many boosters should I have? I've received a total of six. I've received the two initial Pfizer vaccines. Then I also, because of my age group and because of my kidney disease, received two boosters. And then as of April the 26th of this year, my transplant center felt that I should get the Evusheld vaccine. So that was two shots. So I've had a total of six. That is another fantastic question. I think we first, when we're talking about this, we have to define what's meant by a booster. So the for the mRNA vaccines, that's the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, these are two, two dose vaccines in adults. So you get a first dose and then three to four weeks later, you get a second dose. For populations that have immunocompromise, um, and the CDC uses the term moderate to severe immunocompromise, you actually don't get a booster right away. You actually get a third dose. And the third dose counts as 
part of the initial vaccine series. So people with immunocompromised, their initial vaccine series is a three-dose series rather than a two-dose series like it is for most of the population. After that two or three-dose series, people then can go on to get a first booster. And as of right now, you can get a second booster four months after the first booster. So in general, the booster recommendation right now is up to two boosters for anybody who has comorbid conditions or age over 50. This could amount to as many as five shots at the current time for people who are immunocompromised. Doc, my next question is, am I immunocompromised if I'm in the early stages of CKD? And what about if you're on dialysis? So immunocompromised is really hard to define. And we don't always know it based upon obvious characteristics of someone. There are certain things that suggest that somebody's definitely going to be immunocompromised, such as somebody who has a kidney transplant and they're taking immunosuppressive medications to keep their transplant working. Those, those people are definitely immunocompromised. People who have serious immunocompromising illnesses like advanced AIDS, for example, HIV, we know are immunocompromised. And there's some unusual rare diseases that are commonly immunocompromised. People who are getting chemotherapy are immunocompromised. Then you have a whole group of other people where there's a lot less certainty. For most people with early and even moderate stage CKD, um, so people stage one, stage two, stage three, they're probably not very immunocompromised unless they have another one of these conditions. For transplant recipients, they're probably all moderately to severely immunocompromised. Where the biggest area of uncertainty lays is, is with the dialysis population. And you have some people who are getting dialysis who are immunocompromised, some people who are not immunocompromised, and it's really hard to tell the difference between these based upon usual clinical characteristics. Um, so if I have somebody who, if I have two people I'm vaccinating um, as a dialysis doctor in the dialysis unit, I'm not necessarily going to be able to predict which of these two is going to respond to vaccine and, and, and who isn't going to respond to vaccine based upon what I know about them. We have a lot of experience with this actually in the dialysis unit when we look at hepatitis B vaccination. Um, this has been something that's been around for a long time and every dialysis unit measures the antibody response to the hepatitis B vaccine. And when that antibody response drops, when it wanes, you re-immunize. This could be a role for actually checking antibodies in dialysis patients because we don't know who's gonna have more rapid waning of their immunity. And we don't know who's going to have that initial response to vaccine, which basically means we don't know who precisely is gonna be moderately immunocompromised. In my opinion, that's why there may be utility in checking antibody levels. And it's also why I at least defined all of the dialysis patients that I care for as being moderately immunocompromised up front and gave them all a three-dose initial vaccine against COVID because I thought that these are high-risk individuals um, who are congregating. They're all coming together for those who do hemodialysis, hemodialysis unit. And I wasn't going to be able to tell who was going to get a response. So made sure that we could optimize whatever response they were going to get with a three-course initial vaccine. Doc, can you define and describe the differences between antibodies and vaccine? Vaccines basically are given to make your body make antibodies. 
Um, so vaccines stimulate the body um, any one of a number of ways, but they basically introduce usually a component of a virus um, in the case of COVID or SARS-CoV-2 that the body then recognizes as foreign and makes an antibody to it. Um, so vaccines lead to antibodies being present. When we have antibodies, you can actually get those in one of two ways, or actually one of three ways. Um, you can be exposed to the virus itself and make antibodies. You can be exposed to a vaccine and create antibodies, or you can actually be given antibodies that are artificial or from someone else. So the antibodies that are artificial, you may or may not have heard the term monoclonal antibodies. And these are antibodies that were created in the lab to treat people with COVID-19. Early in the pandemic, people were given um, convalescent plasma. So these are people who had already had COVID who donate their plasma, parts of their blood, um, the part of the blood that has antibodies in it. And those antibodies would go to other people and would help fight off the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, the key thing here is that vaccines lead to antibodies, and that's why they're protective. And having antibodies is what protects your body against severe infection. What does Evusel do, and should I take it? Now, I have taken it because my transplant center recommended uh, that I take it. Now, I knew I wanted to take it a while um, prior to that, but the availability of the vaccine was very limited. That is a great question about Evisheld. Evisheld is an antiviral drug. Um, it basically is directed against um, parts of the virus that cause COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, against the spike protein. And it hangs around for a while. So it gives you prolonged protection um, against COVID-19. It can be used as a prophylactic or preventative agent. Um, where the guidance is, is for people with moderate to severe immunocompromise um, to get this to prevent them from getting COVID over the next six months or so. Or if somebody has a contraindication to the vaccine, they can get Evisheld to prevent them from getting COVID moving forward. There are some uncertain risks with this drug, though. Um, it's relatively, it, it's obviously new. Um, and in the initial paper, there was a potential small um, but significant increased risk um, of adverse events in people with cardiovascular disease or cardiac risk factors. Again, this is a small risk, especially in the time of a surge. The risks associated with Evashield are probably a lot lower than the benefit that somebody who's immunocompromised can get from taking it and, from, and get from preventing them from getting sick with COVID. In times of really low prevalence, um, that calculation between risks and benefits becomes a lot less certain. Um, and if there is risk with a drug and there's not a lot of COVID around, it may not be a good time to take that drug. I think particularly when you are looking at people who have kidney disease, we know that there is a lot of cardiovascular disease and a lot of cardiac risk factors in people with kidney disease. Um, in fact, kidney disease itself is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. We know this well. So, so that kind of automatically puts people with kidney disease, especially those who have had advanced kidney disease like dialysis and transplant, potentially in a higher risk group with Evisheld. Of course, the counter with that is that people who've had transplants and people who are receiving dialysis are also the people who are most immunocompromised. 
So there's clearly a very difficult balancing act with this medication. Personally, in times of really high prevalence with the dangerous variant of COVID, I think that the benefits outweigh the risks in people who are immunocompromised. I also think that this is an area where maybe I would check somebody's antibody levels. If somebody is able to make antibody, if they're able to respond to vaccine, then maybe they are not someone you would give Evershell to because those antibody levels, the presence of the response to the vaccine, doesn't mean that you can't get COVID. But what it means is that you're much less likely to get really sick from COVID. And, and that's really important. And that may help guide my determination between who the balance between the risks and the benefits of this. Doc, what should someone do with kidney disease that tests positive for COVID-19? I think the first thing to do if you test positive for COVID is not to panic. In 2020, that may have been different. If we were talking in the spring of 2020, it's amazing how much we've learned in two years. It's equally amazing how much we don't know. But the first thing to do is, is not to panic. What we know right now, especially in people who are vaccinated, is the vaccines really do work. The vaccines are fantastic. They're incredible. They're miraculous. They don't prevent you from getting COVID because that's not how vaccines work. What they do is they prevent the virus that causes COVID from taking hold and really making you sick. So people who are vaccinated where they have an immune response tend to not get very sick from COVID. Again, that, that doesn't mean that you are going to get some body aches and re upper respiratory symptoms and things like that. It's just like any other virus. It can make you feel pretty, I mean, medical term, pretty crummy. But if you're vaccinated, the chances of you getting very sick from COVID are relatively low. I think the second thing to do for people with kidney disease, because people who have kidney diseases are generally a lot more vulnerable is to notify your healthcare provider, whether it's your primary care doctor, or if you are someone who gets dialysis, the dialysis facility, or someone with a transplant, your, your transplant doctor, I would definitely take the next step and notify that person or that team of people immediately. For earlier and moderate stage CKD, there's a good likelihood that you may not do anything, especially if you're vaccinated and you only have very minimal symptoms. That stated, if you have other risk factors or other problems or you're starting to get fevers or starting to feel worse, there are a lot of treatment options that we'll talk about in a minute or two. For people with transplant, you have a lot lower threshold for treating them because even with vaccination, there's a certain degree of immunocompromise and some greater vulnerability. And the transplant teams or infectious disease specialists may be able to advise on the right treatment for that person at the right time. For people who are getting dialysis, you have the additional wrinkle that most of these people go to hemodialysis units. And so you're congregating with a lot of other people who are also potentially immunocompromised. And there you're notifying the dialysis unit, not only to be able to engage in treatment for yourself, but to also make sure that precautions can be taken in order to prevent you from spreading COVID to other people, other dialysis patients who may be surrounded, or the staff who are moving from dialysis patient to dialysis patient. And, and that's a really important aspect there. So if you test positive, I think you shouldn't be shy about calling a healthcare professional and letting them know. And that person's hopefully going to advise you as to what sort of options you have to treat this. For earlier stage CKD, there's also the option of Paxlovid. Um, this is not an option in dialysis patients. 
and it can be problematic in people who are kidney transplant recipients because it interacts with some of the medications. But for earlier stage CKD, I think that's something that's used pretty widely and very safely. What should I do if someone close to me tests positive for COVID-19? That's a great question. And that can be really scary, especially if it's somebody who is a care partner who's helping you with home therapies and other issues like that. I think the first thing is don't panic. Um, I think that especially if you're vaccinated, the risks of getting sick are much lower. And it really emphasizes the importance for for populations of people who have kidney diseases to, to get vaccinated to protect against these very circumstances. If somebody close to you tests positive, you're going to try to physically distance as best possible. This may mean going to separate rooms if it's somebody who lives with you, um, trying to have some, one person stay downstairs, one person stay upstairs, have as much contact as possible outdoors. Um, outdoors is a very safe area in terms of avoiding spread of virus. Outdoors is big and there's breezes and wind and things just don't get trapped around. Um, I also think that if that's the case, it's important to be vigilant to see if you're going to end up also contracting COVID. And the reason to be vigilant about this is that there's also a lot of treatments that are available if, if you do get COVID. Um, this includes for people with earlier stage CKD, um, medications like Paxlovid. And for people with later stage CKD, if they get symptoms or have concerns or other high risk factors, things like monoclonal antibody and remdesivir that can be used to treat. But the most important thing is not to panic. And the second most important thing is to remember you're not expected to know the answers to all of this stuff. And that's what your medical teams are for. So you can call your doctor for, or call the dialysis unit for, or call the transplant team for, and ask them what you should do. Because I can guarantee you that by this point in the pandemic, pretty much every healthcare professional has answered this question already. Thank you. If I have or develop long COVID, how can I best take care of myself? Oh, that is a great question. If I knew the answer to that question, I would be a very successful researcher and doctor right now. And it gets into the question of what exactly even is long COVID. Um, obviously, it's people who have prolonged symptoms after having an acute episode of COVID-19. But it's a difficult diagnosis to make. And I think it's a particularly difficult diagnosis to make in people who have a chronic disease, like chronic kidney disease. If you take people who are treated with dialysis, the symptoms associated with their kidney failure and with their dialysis treatments aren't really all that different from symptoms that people report with long COVID. And differentiating between these is going to be really difficult. I think the best thing that somebody can do if they have symptoms consistent with long COVID is just to try to do their best to take care of themselves. Um, I think staying engaged, trying to exercise and move around as much as possible, following a good diet, all of the things that we advise for anybody who has chronic kidney disease would also be true for somebody who has symptoms of long COVID. What preventative therapies or treatment are available if I get COVID-19? So there's a whole lot more treatments available now than there were in early 2020. And there are some treatments that actually have proven benefits and, and proven effectiveness. I, I think, I mean, you use the word preventative, and I mean, that highlights 
treatment one, two, three, four, and five on the list here, which is vaccination, 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 and then vaccination and vaccination. Um, there, there's no better treatment out there than making sure that you are vaccinated and boosted according to current guidelines and staying up to date with those guidelines. Vaccines can't prevent you from getting COVID-19, but what they can do and what they can do with amazing effectiveness is prevent you from getting really sick from COVID-19. And that's really the most important thing. If you do get COVID and symptoms are very minor and you're vaccinated, a lot of times you don't have to do anything. If you have other risk factors or you're starting to get other symptoms, there are some treatment options that are available. For people who have earlier stage kidney disease, even down into late stage three, maybe even early stage four, although I think the cutoff is, is a GFR of 30, Paxlovid can be an option. That's an antiviral drug that is very effective at preventing COVID from becoming severe, and it's been used very widely. There are a lot more reports these days of sort of a rebound or a return of symptoms several weeks after taking Paxlovid. Again, though, people haven't been very sick, haven't been hospitalized sick in that particular situation, however. So that's a good option. For people with much more advanced kidney disease, including those receiving dialysis, the primary options at that point are probably monoclonal antibody therapy. So these are manufactured antibodies against COVID that can help your body fight off the infection. It's usually given via an injection and you have to go to a facility to get that, or there are home services that can give that to you. The other treatment is a drug called remdesivir, which is another antiviral. And this has been used widely in advanced CKD and dialysis. There early on was some concern that remdesivir, not the remdesivir itself, but the carrier that it was mixed with in order to be able to inject it could be bad for people with kidney disease. This has been looked at moderately well, and it seems that the doses that people will get if they're getting three doses of remdesivir are really not very high and shouldn't be associated with any toxicity. So this also presents another good option for treatment. These are all outpatient treatments. Obviously, if you're sick, if you're having trouble breathing, short of breath, lots of symptoms, coming to the hospital, there are other treatments that can be offered. High-dose steroids are sort of the mainstay for serious respiratory illness associated with COVID, and, and there are a lot of op other options in the hospital. And if you are sick, you, you should definitely get further attention because there are options. But even if you're only a little bit sick, it's worth reaching out to your your physician or your care team to see what other options you can access as an outpatient that can hopefully prevent you from getting into trouble and from needing more aggressive or intensive care moving down the road. Yeah, because I can relate to everything that you just talked about. In March of 2020, both my wife and I contracted COVID. For me, it took approximately four times for me to actually get tested. Every time I would go back to my transplant center to get tested, they kept telling me I wasn't sick enough, even though I had the initial runny nose, fever, chest congestion, cough, the fever wasn't high enough. And it got to the point on the fourth time, I believe my fever was at 103 point six or something like that before they was like, okay, well, let's go ahead and test you. By the time I got my test, 
I had to end up waiting 10 days for the results. In between that time, my wife went to the hospital. She was sent back home saying that all she had was the flu. Two days later, I took her back. She was admitted for pneumonia. And then the next day she tested positive for COVID-19. She stayed in the hospital for six days. So by the time she was released, I was told at that particular time that the only treatment for kidney transplant recipients was hydroxychloroquine. I really did not want to take it, but when my transplant nephrologist was like, well, we looked at the patients in Seattle, Washington. We looked at the patients in New York and then Columbia University, I believe, did a research study. It was the only thing available. So they gave me um, a seven-day prescription for hydroxychloroquine. Um, on that eighth day, things started getting worse. I started suffering with chronic fatigue, had joint pains, chest palpitations, very dizzy, lethargic, couldn't eat. You know, I was just a ball of confusion. And after probably about five days of this, my nephrologist was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and put you in the hospital. We're going to run some tests to see what's going on. When I got out, they said, well, at this point, we really don't know what to do, so we'll just monitor you. Then I went into long COVID after that. And I stayed in long COVID until January the 5th, 2021. So I long COVID, I believe like 291 days, still having brain fog, still being fatigued, even to the point that they diagnosed me with PEM or post-exertional malaise. So now, you know, I have good days, have bad days, have good days where I'm very energetic. Then I have those days where it's bad, I have enough strength to get out of the bed. So now I have to learn how to pace myself. It's amazing how much we've learned about COVID since spring 2020. I mean, we've learned that hydroxychloroquine doesn't do anything. Ivermectin doesn't do anything. And, and really focusing in on, on some of the amazing things that we do have and things that were developed so quickly is where things are. I think if we had it to do over again, the biggest, I mean, the United States and the whole world, I mean, there are many successes here in dealing with such a shock to the system, this, this pandemic, and, and some failures as well. The biggest failure, I think, like you, like you talked about, was the lack of testing. Yes, because in the kidney community, um, it was so many people that was afraid. And one of the things that we harped on was nobody is including us in clinical trials. Um, and it, it was, it caused a panic. Um, you know, one of the first things I learned when I got my kidney transplant was to wear a mask. Anytime that I was in a large group of people, or even when I traveled, you know, to wear a mask to keep um, Clorox wipes with me to wipe down all surfaces and stuff. So, you know, when COVID first started, we went to the mask. That wasn't a big deal for kidney patients. The problem was um, when we start hearing about um, the development of vaccines and knew we weren't included in the clinical trials, it, it really kind of vexed 
a lot of patients out there. I mean, threw them into some serious um, fears and panics that was going on out there. And then really nobody looked at the the behavioral health piece, you know, how COVID-19 really mentally, emotionally wore down kidney patients. So yeah, I certainly agree um, that we've come a long way, but initially it, it was just some really scary times. Initially it was very hard. I, for me, I'm lucky enough to not have kidney disease and not be immunocompromised. I, I know though, seeing people with this all the time, that I wore masks a lot longer than many of the people around me did when going into public places. Again, not necessarily so much to protect myself because I wasn't worried about myself as much once I was already vaccinated, um, but rather for two reasons, to help protect other people and protect people when I'm coming to work, but also just to show support with, because I, I know that there are people out there who still have to wear masks, who may not have a response to vaccines who may be immunocompromised or more vulnerable. And I, I think there's, there's a good time to stand together um, as, as we confront something so new and novel and, and dangerous and somewhat scary. Yeah, I certainly agree. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful for um, a lot of the population that kind of understand that. But then when you get into like the politics of wearing a mask and folks getting hated for wearing a mask versus non-mask wearers. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it's just kind of ridiculous to kind of argue about an individual's health and, you know, wearing a mask and not wearing a mask and stuff like that. And then I can also remember the, the banter with vaccinations. Now, I know some of my friends and colleagues who have kidney disease who wanted to get the vaccines were not able to get the vaccine because of recommendations from their physicians. And I have a couple of friends now who actually caught COVID and weren't vaccinated, and now they are feeling some regret. So they themselves don't know what to do to protect themselves. So... I know this may be a tough question, but if there's any recommendations that you can certainly give for those particular people, that would be uh, much appreciated. I'm not sure if I could say it often enough. Like I said before, I mean, there were some failures in the pandemic, but there were successes as well. And, and the vaccines, the, the mRNA vaccines in particular, are incredible successes. The fact you had a new technology and you were able to prove it safe and effective and get it to market and millions and millions of people in nine months. That's absolutely amazing. And I can't emphasize enough to people that I see, whether they're people with kidney disease, people who know people with kidney disease, which is every single person in the country, how important it is to get vaccinated. And, and getting vaccinated, in my opinion, it's about protecting yourself, sure, but it's also about doing the right thing for the members of your community because you never know who's going to be out there who is not going to be able to fight off an infection and you're protecting you're, you're protecting your neighbors and your friends and your community and your colleagues by, by doing this and i think that's one of the most generous things that people can do even if they themselves are at low risk yeah i, I really appreciate that do you have any suggestions for patient advocates 
and what we can continue to do when it comes around this particular topic, because, you know, we all are aware of the impact now of the B4 and the B5 variant, and even with Evusheld. And I think when I had my doses of Evusheld, that made six shots that I've had. I've, the, the two original ones, I've had all the boosters and then the, the Evusheld, only to find out that the Evusheld doesn't have a lot of protection against the Omicron variant, but there's still a number of folks out here that are not vaccinated and just wondering what can we do? We've shared our stories. We shared our trials and tribulations. We're lucky to be here, even though we lost friends and families, but what can we do as patient advocates, patient ambassadors with the National Kidney Foundation to be able to go and talk to those that may be a little stubborn or talk to folks that may be um, a little hesitant because um, they just may not understand the science or they may not agree with it. I think that's one of the hardest questions to emerge in the last two and a half years. Um, And it's not an easy one to answer. I, I think we're... I've had the most success in convincing people who are vaccine hesitant to go ahead and get vaccines. And this is focusing more on the general population. I'll talk about the kidney population in a second is by making it not about them, um, by making it about their elderly parents or their grandparents, or again, their neighbors or, or their friends and saying, you know, this is, yeah, you may get, you may feel crummy for a day after getting a vaccine, but you may be saving your grandmother's life here. Um, and and that that trade off, that realization that what they're doing is not necessarily to help themselves, but to, to help society and to help others, sometimes can also make a difference. I think in terms of other factors and other individuals. One of the things that we saw, particularly with the dialysis population, that when you bring vaccines to the dialysis population, you have a lot better uptake of vaccines. And that was shown really nicely. People don't necessarily like to have to take two or three extra steps to get vaccines, to wait in line, to go to a store, to book a reservation. And the easier that you can make it, the more likely it is someone is to get vaccinated. The other thing with doing it in a dialysis unit is that there are a lot of trusting relationships already in a dialysis unit. Somebody who I'm seeing as a a dialysis clinician, who I'm seeing once a week forever, I have a lot better chance of having a meaningful discussion about vaccination with them than does watching somebody on TV or going into a CVS, especially if they're hesitant. So if we can get rid of the barriers, bring vaccine to people and administer them in trusted environments, that can make a huge difference. Trying to extend those findings to the general population is a little bit harder, but I think also trying to use trusted relationships and empowering those relationships to promote vaccination is something that we can do. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And my last question has to do with health equity and just trying to get more folks who are at risk to participate in clinical trials. So again, as patient advocates going out into the community and, you know, even kind of thinking about some botched 
clinical trials 40, 50, 60 years ago, and there's still a lot of mistrust out here. What would you suggest that patients can do to kind of to kind of help make clinical trials more diverse and more inclusive for everybody, especially when it comes to um, treatments for COVID-19 or anything else that may arise um, in the future? I think you said it exactly. It's all about trust. It's all about trust. So I, I think it's really important that People, regardless of their background, have the opportunity to build trusting relationships with clinicians and clinical researchers. That if, if you can build those trusting relationships, you can enroll people in clinical trials, you can inspire them to do clinical trials, and hopefully have a vision that this is going to help all communities. But you raise an exceptionally important point, both underrepresentation of, of specific demographic groups in trials, and then underrepresentation of people with specific conditions in trials. One of the things that we've discovered is that none of this stuff was tested in people with kidney disease, especially with advanced kidney diseases, dialysis, transplant. And you have people who are incredibly vulnerable because they have comorbid conditions. And these are the people you should have the most data in. And unfortunately, you have the least data and the least knowledge as to how to treat them, and therefore the fewest options. And again, making sure that even coming into a pandemic, that you have strong, trusting relationships between healthcare providers and communities is going to make every step in the future better. I think it all starts at, at individuals and small relationships that then become societal. Well, thank you so much for answering those questions. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you for uh, inviting me to do so. And I'm, I'm thrilled to actually have this opportunity. As with every episode, we want to give a shout out to a kidney patient celebrating a major milestone. Ashley is celebrating the 10 year anniversary of receiving the gift of life from her cousin, Jennifer. Congratulations on being a decade kidney strong, Ashley. Thank you for listening. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time. And from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.